Well, if I had not had the joy to meet you, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Open up your Bibles with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 18. Before we get there, I'll give you a little intro on what we are preaching on. We're in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. It comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. I want to take a moment. I want to just read to you the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, that's this morning, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, as we get ready to preach on goodness, I want to ask you a question. I actually think it's one of the most important questions that you can be Asks If you are searching spiritually, how you answer this question will determine whether or not you are truly ready for a relationship with God. If you are already a Christian, how you answer this question is going to tell you and me and the Lord quite a bit about your theology. Are you ready for the question? Yes. yes awesome. One person's ready. The rest of you are like, come on, man. What is it? Here we go. Are you a good person. Are you a good person? Somebody comes up to you on the street. They ask you, are you a good person? What do you say? If you said, no, I am not a good person, I would like to know why. So if you have a small group, a community group, a men's study, women's study, or a group of people you talk to, I want you to process this with them. Why did you say no? If you said no, why? Was there something in your past that you did that you just can't get over? Maybe that's it. Maybe you have just unbelievably low self-esteem or self-worth. Maybe you are somebody who's just prone to beating yourself up all the time. You're never quite good enough. All right, let's talk about those of you who said yes. Are you a good person? Do you answer it in the affirmative? And I want to ask, what makes a person, quote, good? Uh, maybe you self-identify as good because there are a whole bunch of things that you don't do. And when you think about goodness, you're thinking about all the bad people and you're like, I'm just not like them. Maybe you believe you are good because there is a list of things that you can look to where you say, I'm a good person because I have done the following five things. So in your groups with your friends, maybe you go home for lunch uh, with your spouse or your family. If you answered yes, I want to challenge you. Um, be humble, but we're giving you permission to make a list of the top five things that you have done that make you step back, lay your head on your pillow and say, I am a good person. So the word good uh, has created a lot of confusion. It's created a lot of confusion for spiritual people as well as Christians because the way all of us in our everyday language use the word good, it is not the same way that the Bible uses the word good. In fact, this creates a lot of confusion because we are talking almost always about very different things. So let me give you four examples where there's just a difference between how you use the word good and how the Bible uses the word good. So in the English language, good can mean something that is subpar, but pleasing. So for example, um, how was the sermon? It was good. Like, I've heard better, right? Uh, it wasn't bad. It was good. Uh, or like after you're done doing something and you ask, how was it? And they say, it was fine. And you're like, fine, that's it? Like, that's our synonym for good? It was, it was good. It was good. It was good enough. 
And we think in terms of good, better, and best. How was the food? It was, it was good. I've had, I've had better. But in the Bible, it's interesting because when the word good is used, it usually means the best. If something is good, there's nothing that can be gooder or better. In fact, um, in the beginning, God made the world and the world was was good. In fact, Jesus isn't the bad shepherd, but Jesus is the good shepherd, right? There's not like a better shepherd. So even when the Bible uses the word good, it's not in terms of good, better, best. It's actually in terms of, it's kind of the best it can be. All right, here's another one. In the English language, good is whatever is lawful. So for example, abortion for many people um, is a good thing because it is lawful in America and you won't be punished. And so for many Americans, we thoughtlessly or mindlessly uh, define good by whether or not the government tells us it is good. Well, I've got great news for you, by the way, which is the government does not define good or bad. Governments across the world have called many horrendous things good. Uh, in fact, what we believe in the Bible teaches is that governments come and go. Governments misdefine things, but good is defined by God, not by governments. And so the Christian rises above the notion that good is legal. And we look to God's word and we say, God, it might be legal, but is it good? And does it bring you glory? Here's a third uh, illustration. In the English language, good can mean that someone is uh, excellent at a craft and better than most people. So like you are a good athlete, you're a good artist, or you're a good neighbor. Like if someone says, you're, you're a good neighbor, that's because they've had some bad neighbors and look around because other people are probably not being a good neighbor. But it's this idea that you are actually behaviorally or in terms of your craft or abilities, you're better than most people. You are good. But it's interesting because in scripture, this is an interesting bomb it drops, no one is good. Now we're going we're gonna to dig into this, but like there's this very cultural shattering idea that the Bible doesn't really affirm people as being really, really good. Here's a fourth example. In our culture, good deeds make God like you better so that if you accrue more good deeds, you have a higher statistical chance of getting to heaven. This is Everywhere, by the way. So I'll give you a little example. Um, I, one of the uh, opportunities I have where my kids go to school at Westminster Christian School is I have the opportunity to interview people who are looking to come to the school. My job is to hear their testimony, to hear the story of how they came to faith in Jesus. And what's interesting is that I have sat down with many people who go to church for many, many years and I'll tell you the question that I ask them, and I'll share with you one of the most common answers I get. I ask them, if your son or daughter were to sit down with you and say, mom, dad, how can I know today that if I die, I'm going to go to heaven and be with Jesus? What would you tell them? I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the following response. Well, honey, you just got to be good enough. You just got to be a good person. Now, these are people who go to gospel-preaching churches for years. And the power of this cultural mantra that good people go to heaven is so strong that years of preaching in the pulpit has not been enough to dismantle their brains. There's actually been a couple circumstances where I sit down with people and I share with them the biblical truth that the Bible actually says there really are no good people. There are forgiven people. And it's interesting because then we open up the Bible and we walk through this every time. I can't tell you how many times I've had this. I open up to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of yourselves. It is not by works. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. And we sit there and we'll read this and we'll slowly process through it. And it's like, I had one person say to me, you know what? I never felt like that made sense that good people go to heaven. But this is so much more consistent with who I know I am and who I know God is. And I'm like, yes, because it's true. You're not a great person and he is good. And this is one of the most beautiful parts of the gospel. Uh, I get to listen to people's testimonies on a regular basis. And, and I just love hearing, like, when did you trust in Jesus for the first time? And then if maybe they don't really know the answer, I, we just kind of probe. And I, and I got to tell you, uh, Village Church, if you're listening to this, maybe you've believed the good person lie. I'm telling you, this is the moment to put that lie to bed because the Bible is so clear. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. No one is good enough to go to heaven. Uh, let's define the word goodness here. Um, goodness, very simply, in the Bible, it means an uprightness of two things, of your life as well as your heart. So let's just be super redundant for a moment. A good person is somebody who does good things, right? That's, that's easy. So what makes a good thing, a good work, a good deed, a good deed? Now, if you go out into the world, here's how the culture defines a good deed. Culture defines a good deed by very simply, it's a deed that it has to help someone else. It could be little, it could, it could be big, but it's good if it helps someone else. That's it. That's about as far as you have to go. If you want to be seen as a good person, all you have to do is help a lot of people or help a couple people. And the more publicly you do it, then the more people will be able to affirm you as good. What's interesting is that the Bible has a very different set of requirements. In fact, the Bible has two very stringent requirements that cannot be fudged, that both of these things have to come together in order for something you do to be seen by God as good. Now, don't get me wrong. You could do things that the world applauds as good, but our biggest concern as Christians is what does God think? And so for God to look at something, for it to be a good deed, a good work, two things have to converge. Here's, here's the first one. Number one, it has to be a deed that is consistent with the word of God. And so if you do something that the government tells you is good, but the word of God says is sin, is it good before God? The answer, of course, is no. It has to be consistent with the word of God. But here's the clincher. It's not just the what you do, it's the why you do it. And because God probes into the inner person, he knows all of your secret little motives, mine too. He knows all the things that we do that look good on the outside that people applaud us for, but deep down inside, they are not for good motivations. For God to require a deed to be good and for you, believer, to be rewarded for this deed in the afterlife, right? Here's what it has to be. It has to be done for the glory of God. Now, to bring your behavior to the point where your deeds are consistent with God's word and your motivations are for God's glory. Christian, are you regularly a good person? I'm going to be honest with you all. I do a lot of good things for a lot of bad reasons. I do a lot of bad things that I think they're for good reasons and I'm like, oh, that wasn't right. Generally speaking, it is hard to be a good person. Now put that in the context of this election cycle, the division in the church, the division in your families, the division amongst your friends, even just the way we use words in different ways. You say you're a liberal, I say I'm a conservative, I say whatever, and we mean different things and we import to each other and then all this emotions, and then we're gonna have to go to Thanksgiving. God, help us all. That's coming. Like, that is real. Are you a good person there? How are your motives there? 
Are you walking into these environments? You're on social media and you see your friend write the dumbest thing in the world and you're like, bleep, 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 type, 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 for the glory of God, enter. Right? No. It is hard to be a good person. And here's what the, here's what the Spirit of God is calling village church to, Christians to everywhere in this crazy season. We need to shine brightly and we need to live according to God's word and we need to figure out how to get our motivations to be for the glory of God. Not for our own sense of justice, not to be right, not to prove something, but God, I'm gonna walk into this crazy and I wanna live according to your word and somehow, God, I want this to be for your glory. I want you to open up your Bibles, Luke 18, verse 18. It's the story of Jesus and the rich ruler. Uh, we're going to look at the conversation that they have, and it's a public conversation. As the rich ruler comes to Jesus, there are disciples and other people who are listening into this. They're eavesdropping in this conversation. We know a couple things. We know that the ruler is wealthy. We know that people probably know him. Uh, we also know that he probably does a lot of good. He gives away a lot of things, takes care of people. He's got some influence because he is a, a ruler. He's probably a Jewish man, although he's not a Pharisee. It does not seem like this guy is trying to trap Jesus in any way, shape, or form. But he's wrestling with a fundamental question we're going to see here in verse 18. Here's what it says. A ruler asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's his big question. How do I know that I know that I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven? I remember asking that as early as four and five years old. Mom, dad, I'm going to die. How do I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven? And his question is legitimate. Whether or not he phrases it in the right way or not, who knows? But here's the question. How do I know? How do I inherit eternal life? And here's what Jesus knows, because Jesus knows this man's heart. Jesus knows that this man like possibly some of us in the room or some of us listening or watching online have believed this lie. This man has believed the good person lie, that good people go to heaven. And it's the most common lie believed, not just now, all throughout history, every civilization, everywhere. doesn't matter where you go. People believe everywhere throughout history, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, or bad people go to one place and good people go to a different place. This is the most common misconception everywhere you go. And so Jesus... He doesn't even quite address his question, but what he's going to do is address his heart. Verse 19 says, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here's what he's saying to the guy. Listen, you're a Jew. You've been trained. You know doctrine. You know theology. You went to school as a kid. You go to synagogue every week. You already know the Bible teaches there's no one good. You're already aware of this. So why do you call me good? And it's kind of this little like hint, hint. Are you saying I'm God? Ha ha. Why do you say this? Now what Jesus is tapping into is a really important doctrine. I want to take a moment and teach you a doctrinal concept. Uh, this concept is called total depravity. Now don't get lost in it. Total means completely. Depravity means sinful. And here's what it means. That mankind, every one of us, we are born into this world totally depraved or completely sinful. That the way we think, the way we feel, sin has affected every single part of our life, our body, and our soul. We can't get away from it. It's always there. Now, does this mean that we are as bad as we could be? The answer, of course, is no. 
like we're not as bad as we could be. But this is why when you have children, you have to teach them how to do good because again, kids are wicked little sinners. We all are sinners. We come into this world needing to be trained and taught what is good and what is right because it's not the impulse. And even as we grow, right, we're still, many of us in this room are either uh, junior hires or teenagers or adults, and we're still not that great, are we? Right? And so there's this idea that sin is just in us. It's affected every part of us. There is no part of the way you think, the way you feel, the things you want, the things you do that are unaffected by sin. Now, if you're a believer, Jesus has set you free from it, but you are still infected with sin everywhere. And this is a battle until the day you die. Romans chapter 3, verse 12 says this. It's very startling. It's a quote from the Old Testament. He says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. This is apart from Jesus, meaning their ability to do good doesn't exist. He says, no one does good. Not even one. Now, does he mean according to the world? No. In fact, people do good according to the world's definition of good every day, all the time. What he's saying is before God, there is no one inherently good. In fact, apart from faith in Jesus, no one has the ability to even do good before God because that requires you doing it for the glory of God. All right, Jesus is not gonna let this guy off the hook. So here's what he has to do. He has to show this guy his bad theology. Verse 20, Jesus says, okay, you're so amazing. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So the rich young ruler, I think this is great. He responds, all these I've kept from my youth. Now at this point, I want to truck his mother along and say, really? From his youth? He didn't lie. He didn't steal. He honored you. He respected you. Like at two years old, his first words were like, whatever you say, mother, I will obey compliantly. Like, no. Okay, let's just give the guy credit. Let's say he's the one in a billion He's got that natural like, like inclination uh, in his heart just to be like, I don't know, a better kid. You know what I mean? Some kids are a little bit easier to train than others. You know what I'm saying? Let's say he's that kid. All right, fine. And as it stands, he's got a lot of money. He does a lot of good. He cares for a lot of people. He's confident enough, by the way, to stand up in front of a, a group of people and say, I'm a good guy. And no one's really going to argue with him. And so this guy's pretty confident. He believes to the core. He is good. He's publicly standing toe-to-toe with Jesus, defending his position that he's good. And he's defending that he's not just good. At this point, he's probably saying, I'm good enough to get to heaven, like Jesus. Like, if I die right now, and I stand at the pearly gates, like, I think God should be standing there with, like, a round of applause and angels with a choir saying, here's a good man. Like, this guy deserves to get in. Like, that's his self-concept. And by the way, he's not alone. There are a lot of people who believe, people who bear the name of Jesus Christ. They say they're a Christian and they believe. If you ask them, why is God going to let you in? They are not going to say, because of the blood of Christ that was shed on my behalf. They're going to say, because I am a good person. And it's a lie. We're going to see actually in a minute that the disciples, even in this time in Luke 18, they believe the good person lie. Jesus has to dismantle these notions that good people go to heaven, that this guy is actually good. Verse 22, he's going to go right after his heart. It says this, when Jesus heard this, his processing, he said to him, okay, one thing you still lack. In other words, okay, Richard Luther, you're a good person. Everybody applauds you. 
Your mother and father applaud you. Your rabbi applauds you. Your friends applaud you. Your employees applaud you. Poor people applaud you. Everyone's like, look at the rich ruler. He's a good man. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. Sell all that you have. Distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And, by the way, come follow me. Uh, I just want to be super clear for a moment. If you were the person talking to Jesus in front of everyone at this moment, defending your righteousness, he probably would not have said this to you. The reason Jesus says this to the rich ruler is because the rich ruler has what's called an idol. The rich ruler has something that is more important to him than God. The rich ruler has this thing that when threatened, he all of a sudden becomes a pretty bad person. Do you have that thing? Most of us do. And here's what what I found. I found that many, many people believe in their head that Jesus Christ is God. They believe that God, the Father, raised him from the dead. They They even believe that salvation is not by good works, but through trusting in Christ. They believe that. But they will not trust in Jesus personally as their God because they know if they do, they will be required to give up something specific. So let me ask you this. If you're not a Christian, if I trust and follow Jesus, then I know I will be required to give up what is the fill in the blank. I mean, here's the deal. Jesus goes after whatever's in the blank. Believer, let's shift the question. I believe in Jesus, but I know that he wants me to give up blank. I love blank more than I love him right now. And we've all got it. We've got these idols, these things that summon us. But in this moment, here's what Jesus is doing. He's going after his idol. He's going after this thing. And here's the question for the rich ruler. Who do you love more or what do you love more? Your money or people? All of a sudden, the guy who says, I love money for people, he's not really a great guy anymore, is he? He's pushing him to the edge of himself, to the end of himself. And he's making him face this reality. I might be good before other people, but I'm not as good and awesome as I think I am. Verse 23 says, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Now remember, all the disciples and some other people apparently are watching and listening to this conversation. So Jesus, verse 24 says, seeing that he had become sad. Now, don't, don't forget this. The rich ruler is still in the conversation. He's still listening to everything Jesus says. Jesus turns from the guy addresses the group, and he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been debate on what is the eye of a needle. Is it a a legitimate needle? Is it a place? It doesn't matter because the takeaway is that whatever it is, it is utterly, totally impossible. And so here's the idea. This dude, this ruler... It is impossible for him to go to heaven by being good. It's not possible. His sin is his money. All rich people, their sin is going to be their money, apparently, if they're extremely rich like him. But everybody's got their thing. For him, that's it. And here's what Jesus is saying. It's impossible. And here's, here's how they took this. Okay, if that guy, he's a good dude. 
If he can't get to heaven, then how can anybody? That's the idea. If this dude who's following the law, he's doing good, he's taking care of the poor, like everybody knows him, if that guy isn't good enough, then who can possibly be good enough? And look what they say in verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus says, what is impossible with man? What's impossible? Being good enough to get to heaven. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is only possible if God does it, not if you do it. And his rules are crystal clear. The only people that are forgiven, saved, and redeemed are not good people, but sinners who come before God and confess their sin and ask for salvation through faith in Jesus alone. That's it. Nobody will be able to stand before God and say, God, let me in because I follow the law. I'm better than most people. And you're going to be lucky to have me in heaven, by the way. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Verse 28, we see that it seems that the disciples still don't get it yet. So Peter, impulsive Peter, chimes in and he says, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And I don't know how he actually said it, but I just imagine some level of like braggadociousness. And so he's saying, so are we good enough? Because we did the very thing he wouldn't do. We gave up everything. We're following you. So are we good? Am I good? Because I did the very thing you told him to do. He wouldn't do it. So I, I, we must, hey guys, we must be great. Jesus doesn't actually answer his question, but he does get to the point. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. Now watch this. For the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Why you do the good things matters. And here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, you will be rewarded for your good deeds, whatever they might be, if you do them for the glory for the, of God, for the sake of the kingdom. And here's what Jesus is doing with the disciples, with the rich young ruler. He is dismantling all of these arrogant, boastful notions that God likes me better and I get to go to heaven because I accrued enough good works or because I was a better person than my neighbor, my friend, my family member, you fill in the blank. And by the way, guys, this is incredible news. Because if you've ever tried to work yourself to heaven and you're wondering, was it enough? Was it enough? Was it enough? If you ever watched somebody die who believes that their salvation is based on good works and they close their eyes not knowing whether or not they have accrued enough good works, it is a terrible thing. And the gospel is so good and so freeing because the gospel says this, anybody, no matter how bad you are, you can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And when God saves you, he knows every dumb, ridiculous thing you're gonna do from that point forward for the rest of your life and he saves you in that moment anyways. Because salvation was never about how bad you were, how good you are, or how good you might be. It is about how good Jesus was for you in your place every time. So Village Church, I got good news. Friends, I've got good news. If you're like, okay, wait a minute. I've always thought salvation was for good people. I've got even better news. Salvation isn't for good people. It's for anybody who confesses their sin to Jesus and asks them to save them. That's a whole lot easier than accruing good works for the rest of your life and hoping and hoping you were just good enough.
I'm going to close with a couple so what's. Number one, non-Christian, seeker, spiritual person, somebody who's yet to place your faith in Jesus. No one, no one, no one is good enough to get to heaven. I will not stand before God and say, I've preached thousands of times and been faithful and raised my kids. None of that. Not an ounce of that. Every human on the planet, no matter how good they were, no matter how much they did, according to God's word and for the glory of God, good things, no one will stand before God for a moment and boast. It's like a billionaire who was given all of their money and they did nothing to get it bragging that they're rich. No, no, you you did nothing. If you end up, after you trust in Jesus, exhibiting the fruit of the spirit of goodness, praise God for that. But, But understand, it's not even possible unless he intervened in your life, gave you his spirit, saved you and gave you life. He gets all glory, all credit, even after you come to Jesus for the truly good things that you did for him. So what, number two, Christian, every truly good work will be rewarded by God. You actually do. After you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the ability to actually live out goodness. You have this ability. You have the ability to do things according to God's word and for the glory of God. And I want to just make a commitment to you. Every good thing you do, every good deed, God will not overlook. He is just and he will reward you for all of them. Even though he's going to get all the glory and all the credit, he will affirm that you could have done something different and he will reward you. There will never be one thing that you sacrifice this side of heaven. One thing that you do that is right, no matter what it costs you, for the glory of God, nothing that will not be worth it one day. I promise you this, patiently wait. God will reward you and it will be 100% worth it. The book of Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for his name. He is not unjust. He will not overlook it. I guarantee you this. He will reward it. Even though he will get all the glory, you will be richly rewarded. Number three, align your motivation to be for God's glory. Now you might say this, like how do I, how do I actually do this? First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the, say with me, glory of God, right? how do I drink orange juice to the glory of God? Like it's just orange juice, right? And here's this notion that the apostle Paul has. He says, listen, just eating and drinking can be, do, can be something that is a good thing. Here's the difference between a neutral thing and a good thing. The good thing is done for the glory of God. Well, one verse earlier, he actually gives us like the key that shows us how to do normal things for the glory of God. And he says this with prayer and with thanksgiving. So let me just like give you an example of how this looks. I would love to tell you that every time I get up and preach, my motives are always 100% pure, without fault, without flaw, always for the glory of God for the last 20 some years, perfectly. You guys know that's not true, right? Like, total depravity tells me everything that I do is affected by sin, my motivations, my mind, everything. So I have to be humbled by that, right? Uh, on Sunday mornings, I think about all these things that go through my brain and there's insecurity, there's overconfidence, all the, all the crazy stuff that goes through all of our own heads. And I have to step back and I just say, God, 
help me love and serve and do this for your glory. And thank you. And I just spent time thanking God for the opportunity. And there's something about just walking into it with a spirit of thankfulness that gives God a lot of glory. So you don't see as I sit over here and I sing. And, and then the last probably minute or so, I just say, God, thank you. Because thankfulness is the antidote that somehow aligns our heart to give him glory. And so this is like a little discipline I put in my brain because I'm selfish and ridiculous and insecure and overcompensating and overconfident, all the other things that we all are on a regular basis. But even that, even the broken man trying to get up and preach has to go before the Lord and say, ah, I want this to be for your glory. And I don't, I don't even know that right now, it, I think I might even just be rote. God, would you help me? Would you help me bring you glory? You go to work, you're having lunch. Why do we pray before we eat, by the way? Um, it just goes back to this. I want to I give God glory in, the, glory in this moment. I wouldn't have this food if he didn't provide for me. Um, I get in my car and it doesn't break down. Thank you, God. You know, it's this spirit of regular gratitude throughout the day. And, and if you hear me pray enough, if you come to Village Church, um, you'll hear me say like phrases, uh, Lord, we are grateful. It's with a spirit of gratitude. It's our privilege. Um, really, this comes from a theology that says, if we're going to give God glory, it has to really start with us just aligning ourselves from entitlement to gratitude. Entitlement does not give God glory. I deserve this food. I deserve this building. I deserve, like, we just don't deserve a lot. I go before the Lord on a regular basis because I'm so selfish. My motivations are all over the place. And I have found from 1 Corinthians 10, 30, and 31 that the best way to give God glory in the mundane things is to have a regular spirit of, God, thank you. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this food. Thank you for this car. Thank you for these friends. Thank you for this, these clothes. Thankful, thank you for the money I have. Thank you for the money I don't have. Thank you for the, you know, just go before the Lord on a regular basis. And I found it as this great little tool in my toolbox that helps me give God a whole lot of glory. God loves when his people say thank you. God loves when his people have a heart of gratitude toward him. I think this is a great transition, by the way, into communion because... I'll share with you one of the most common ways that the good person gospel makes its way into church. I'll sit with somebody and I'll watch them and, and um, it's a believer. And if I know them, I'll, this is a conversation I had a couple times. Um, they won't partake of communion. And I'll say, again, they're a friend. I'll say, why don't you partake of communion? And they'll say, you know, if you had seen my week, I really don't, I just don't feel like I'm worthy. Um, the amount of times people have come to me and said, hey, I, wanna, I, I just want to let you know I'm not taking communion today. And almost always the answer is not because I have an allergy, because I'm sick. It is because of something they had done either that morning or that day or that week. Uh, on the way to church, you know, mom, dad, you're just bickering and fighting with your kids and you feel terrible. And you're like, be a good person, blah, right? Like, stop, blah, respect me. And then <laughs> you're like, what am I saying? Like, I'm losing my mind here. You come to church and you're taking communion and there's like this weird thought that communion is for good people. It's interesting when non-Christians come to church, they look at us and they think, oh, they're Christians. They're supposed to be good people. Oh, I'm sorry, most of the Christians I know aren't great people, right? We're not here because we're really good. We're here because we're not good. We're here because we struggle. We're here because we're broken. But this idea makes itself into the Christian community. So we have these elements and, and we're like, I'm not good enough to partake of these. I, have to, I just have to let them go. And, and I just want to look at you all and just say, we don't take communion because we're good. We take communion because he's good and he, Jesus, was good enough for us. You are not worthy to take communion. Neither am I. I don't take communion because I've been good enough to make myself worthy of it. 
I partake of communion because it's a declaration that God told me that he loves me and he's died for me because I'm not good enough. He has qualified me. I'm not qualified because of my own good works. I'm qualified because of the good works or the righteousness of Jesus. So when we partake of these elements in just a little bit, I just want to remind you, this is not your declaration that you're good. It's your declaration that you're not good enough. It's also your declaration that Jesus was good for you. Now, there are communion cups underneath your chairs. I encourage you to pick those up. And and if you're new here, you might be wondering, how do I know whether or not I should take communion? Uh, What are your rules on communion? And we have one simple rule. The rule goes like this. We don't care where where you go to church. I don't care how bad you've been. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to partake of communion with us. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we want to encourage you to partake of communion with us. Now, you might have some kids with you. You're wondering, are my kids allowed to take it? That is up to mom and dad, um, you. Um, If your kids have trusted in Christ, they are welcome to take of communion. Communion is not for those who understand all the depths and nuances of the gospel. At four or five years old, I understood enough of the gospel to be saved. So if your kids have trusted in Christ, you can encourage them to go under and take this. And they may not understand it. They may even just guzzle it all down and they may not even get all of it. But here's what they do know. It just reminds us and tells us that our God loves us and Jesus shed his blood and let his body be killed in our place and our behalf for our sins. And so if you maybe today you're here and you're like, I've never trusted in Christ. I believe the good person lie or some version of it. But today I want to trust in Christ for the first time. I want to give you an encouragement. I want you to take these elements and I want you to partake. And this partaking is a personal, nonverbal declaration that you believe you are a sinner. You believe God loves you. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And you believe that salvation is for any person who asks God for forgiveness through faith in Christ. If that is where you're at today, maybe for the first time, Partake of communion and let it be your first declaration of your faith and your confidence in Jesus Christ. So we're going to have just a minute of silence. It's an opportunity for you to confess and also to be thankful. So let's have some time of silent prayer before the Lord.